Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Okay, the book of Ephesians, we are in chapter 4, and today we will be um, considering what the Lord has to say to us from chapter, verse, from chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Now, <clears throat> if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, X amount of weeks, as we've been going through this epistle, you would have seen, you would have heard how the Apostle Paul has taken his time to establish doctrine, great truths of doctrine. He has patiently repeated himself in so many ways again and again and again so that we could understand the great doctrinal truths which um, establishes our faith, the things we believe in and why we believe in them. And we have considered how as believers, you know, it's important that we know our doctrine. Um, and, and so from moving from knowing what we believe in, the Apostle Paul is going to, in a sense, sh start shifting gears. Because it isn't just a matter of us knowing great doctrinal truths. It isn't just a matter of us knowing, you know, every aspect of the Trinity or how God's in, God works in a situation if we never, ever, ever apply it to our lives. It just becomes knowledge, it just becomes head knowledge, and the Bible has a lovely way of saying that knowledge puffs up. So knowing stuff isn't enough. And so for the next, so for the next three chapters... Paul's going to basically say, now you know all this stuff. And you don't just know it. You should understand it. Now apply it to your lives. And this is the area where we all, as believers, have great difficulty. Because situations present themselves to us in our lives. You know, the classic one is is of relationships. It, you know, the classic one is, is that you become a believer, you're already in a relationship, and you don't know, well, they're not a believer, I'm a believer, what do I do in this relationship? Do I choose the Lord, or do I stay in this relationship? It's the classic one. And having been around the block a few times, you know, there has been many occasions where I've seen individuals choose their relationship over the Lord. Then we have a situation where, you know, we want to be in a relationship. And no, a believer isn't really forthcoming with Shane in the interest. And so it's easy just to find someone who will show us some interest. And then we have this thing of like, well, do I outwork my faith and stand for what I know to be true? Or do I succumb to this situation which has presented itself? Now, that's just one example. 
But it's probably the classic example. And we have all these difficulties, you know, trying to say, I want to be a Christian, but it's hard. And so, our practice has to mirror, you know, our position. It's no good saying we believe in something if we don't act it, if we don't outwork it. And that's why many unbelievers say, well, the church is just full of hypocrites because they say one thing and do another. And we don't want to be of that statement. We don't want to be of that camp. And so Paul is going to take time now to, you know, say, look, this stuff which I've been teaching, I've been showing you in the first three chapters. Now, you know, in your relationships, work it out. With your children, work it out. With your bosses, those who are above you, work it out. You know, work it out because that's how we become Christ-like, by working it out. The Bible clearly tells us that we should move from a stage of being babes in Christ to becoming mature individuals in Christ. Well, how do you become a mature individual in Christ? It's by outworking in our lives the things which are clearly written within the scriptures. And so that's where we're going for the next three chapters. Ready for the ride? Amen. He put, the Apostle Paul prayed a prayer last week, and he, he said within the prayer that basically he wants us to be strengthened within the inner man. Because, as I just said, you know, outworking this stuff isn't easy. It's hard. And so he's saying, look, don't try and do it in your own strength. Pray to be strengthened within the inner man. Because Christ in you is the hope of glory. Just you in you, (laughs) there's no hope of glory. So you need to be strengthened. It's a prayer which he prayed for, for someone who desires to be moving with the Lord, to be mature. And so now... The Apostle Paul in chapter 4, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen? So, after making this, after praying, Paul makes this personal appeal to these believers, and it's, it's relevant to us today. And he says, I therefore, and it's the classic thing I'm going to say, when we see the word therefore, we have to establish why is the word therefore, therefore. Why is it there? And so what it actually does is it challenges the reader or it challenges the hearer to now look back up over everything which has just been said, everything which has just been established. We're taking weeks upon weeks to, to go through Ephesians, but remember, this is a letter. They were just read this in one, in, in one sitting. 
so we have to see what the word therefore is therefore. It's therefore that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That he has adopted us as sons. That he has made us accepted in the beloved. That we have redemption through his blood. That we have the forgiveness of sins. That we have obtained an inheritance. That we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. God has made us sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The, the middle wall of separation, the things which has divided us, has now been torn down. That we, Gentiles, who were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God has gone through all these lengths to create in himself one new man out of the two. That's why the word, therefore, is there. They're the things we have to take hold of and establish in, in our lives as doctrinal truths. That's the foundation we build upon. So Paul is basically saying, because of all these things, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And you see, Paul time and time again refers to himself as you know, the prisoner of the Lord. Or he's less than the least of all the apostles. And it wasn't him just trying to say, oh, I'm just, oh, woe is me, I'm so bad. You know, he knew the depths of where he was coming from and the actions he did before, before God the Father that he just wanted to do all that he could do in order to please God. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, you know, Sometimes it's good for us to remember what we were like before Christ actually came in and rescued us. Now, some of us have darker past than the rest of us. But we're all coming from the same place. We're all sinners saved by grace. And we need to remember these things. And you see, Paul... He was in prison. But as far as he was concerned, he didn't consider himself to be a victim. He didn't have a victim mentality. You know, he was a prisoner of Rome, but he wasn't a victim of Rome. Because he's a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, yes, it wasn't easy for him being in prison, but... This just goes to show that circumstances and experiences are basically irrelevant. They're not an excuse. But it's all right for you, Paul, because you're an apostle. Bruv, you've been given revelation upon revelation. Yeah, but you know what? I've been whipped a few times. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. You know, have you guys done any of those things? For my faith, for you guys, because what I'm saying is bringing Gentiles into the faith here, and the Jews don't like it. So 
is it all right for me? No, it's not. And so none of us can really say, well, you just don't know what I'm going through. Your experiences, yes, true, are your experiences. And, and God, by his providence, he knows why he, al- he allows us individually to go through certain experiences. Sometimes in this life, we don't get the why. We don't get the answer to the why. We have to wait until we be with the Lord, and then we say, Lord, I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. Why? And that's when he will wipe it away every tear. And so, Paul makes this personal appeal because he himself had to pray to be strengthened within the inner man. He's not asking us something which he's not doing himself. He's praying to be strengthened in the inner man. You know, as far as Paul was was concerned, you know, he lived a life of, in a sense, total abandonment of, you know, God, you're in control. You want me to go over here? I'll go. You want me to go over there? I'll go. Even to the point, again, where I think it's in the book of Acts, you know, there was that prophet who bound himself up with a belt and said, you know, whoever owns this, you know, that's what's going to happen to them if they go to Jerusalem. And Paul is like, what, you're trying to stop me for fulfilling God's purpose for my life? No, I don't think so. You know, he, made, he, he was convinced within himself. He made those things sure within himself. And so he was always desiring and willing to respond to the Lord's will for his life. And so he appeals. He appeals to these Ephesian believers and he appeals to us today because... He knows that at this point he is God's man called at an exact time and positioned in an exact place to minister in this exact way by sharing this letter to us. So he says, I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you. And that's that's a lovely word which we don't use anymore in the English language. I beseech you, dear fellow. What, what, what? One beseeches thee. We don't use it. What does beseech mean? I know we have a lot of teachers here. But it is from the Greek word, which is parakaleo. And it means, I beg you. I implore. Did Calpurnia get that over there? I beg you. I implore you. You see... I, I, every time I read this, I was thinking of that song. Ain't too proud to beg. But he wasn't too proud to beg. You know, again, that is something which we don't see these days. You know, who, who likes to beg anybody for anything? I'm not begging you. Do you think I, you think I need you to do anything for me? I'm not begging you. It's, it just seems like such a diss. We don't want anyone to beg us for anything. We're not begging anyone for anything. But Paul's here and he's saying, I beg you, 
I beseech you. I, I implore you. You know, even now, the word's uncomfortable, isn't it? Thinking that you could beg someone for something. When was the last time we begged someone for something and felt no way? It wasn't that we felt like we had degraded ourselves. Paul's happy to degrade himself. Paul's happy to say, I beg you, bruvs. And what's he begging them for? Well, the first thing he's begging them for is to walk. (laughs) And whenever I think about walking, I think about movement. So the Christian experience is not about just being static. Now, initially, when I first introduced this epistle, I said that we could actually look at the book of Ephesians in three, under three headings. Sit, walk, stand. He's taken three chapters to see where we have been seated with Christ. Now, it's walking time. Walking describes steady movement. And we all need this as believers because with with steady movement, it it demonstrates we're actually going somewhere. It demonstrates that perhaps we're not the same today as we were yesterday. It demonstrates that perhaps we're not the same today as we were last week, last month, last year. You know, it's sad when you have to, you know, minister to someone or share with someone. It just seems like year after year, they're just going through the same thing. And it's like the children of Israel. Because they wouldn't heed to what the Lord had to say to them, he allowed them to go round and round and round that mountain. Oh, you don't, you don't want to get it? Okay, round the mountain. You don't, you don't want to get it? Round the mountain. You'll stay there. Does the Lord want you to stay there? No. But you are making yourself stay there. And the Lord wants us to move. He wants us to walk. Walk. Knowing that as Christ is working on us in the inside, it's being demonstrated on the outside And we're walking slowly, making movement, slowly, making movement. And then we look back over a few years and you say, wow, I'm not the same person I used to be. I use another classic example. You're in your car, somebody cuts you up, you're like, what? What? You don't even know who I am. You probably can't be cutting me up like that, you know. That's only me, yeah? I don't do that anyway. But then you get to a place where somebody cuts you off. You're like, bruv, have the road. I want to get where I'm going. And I hope you get where you're going to. But if you feel like you need to cut me up, praise God. doesn't bother me. You know, what am I saying now? I'm just saying there's an indication of a different mindset to the whole thing within that. You know, 
And the Lord wants us to get these different mindsets to, to life. That's why three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of how you're meant to think, three chapters of understanding Christ, the knowledge of Christ. Now apply it. So once we have these things settled in our hearts and minds that we are in Christ Jesus, that we are seated in heavenly places, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. They're not just words, it's truth. That we have God's power working in us and through us. We are to walk. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because he goes on to say that we're not just to walk in this casual, sort of like blasé fashion. Now we are to walk worthy. Mm. Well, that throws a different spin on things, doesn't it? Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Again, you see, what Paul is writing here is to a genuine believer. He begs the genuine believer, the one who confesses Christ as Lord and Savior, to aim to be equal to the call of the Father. God the Father has called you, and he now wants you to walk worthy of that calling. Now that is deep. That is something we just cannot casually put to one side. That is something which we all have a responsibility to. And, you know, it all involves abiding by the scriptures. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments. It means being led by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. So it's abiding by the word it's being led by the Spirit, and it's by committing all things into his hands through prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. They all have a relationship with each other. It's by even sacrificing, as I said before, our wants and our desires for his wants and his desires. The classic statement in scripture, which is just beautiful, it's powerful, and we're saying, thank you, Lord, for saying these words. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know, it's so easy as we wake up in the morning, we go about our daily business, just for always just to do our own will. Yeah, this is what I want to do, and I don't feel like doing this. And, and not considering, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? What should I be doing in this situation, Lord? Is this pleasing before you? 
See, when we start thinking of things in that way, we're walking worthy of this calling now. And we are to walk worthy of this calling because at the end of the day, we did not call ourselves. We didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think it's a good idea just to be a Christian. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. God is the one who called us. He is the one who initiated our salvation. And God's always the initiator. Always. And so if God has taken his time to say, I'm going to call you then it's only reasonable (laughs) that we respond to his calling and then live a life and walk out a life worthy of the calling. You know, Jesus in John 15, he says, you know, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so again, we look at verses like that and we're saying, you know, Jesus is looking for fruit. He's looking for fruit which will remain. You you can't live on what you did two years ago. You can't live off of, well, I used to. You know, again, in the Old Testament, that manna came down and it was fresh for one day. You couldn't store it up. And so the Lord wants us to be seeking him through his word, through his spirit, by his spirit, sorry, in prayer, to be seeking that fresh manna daily so that we can be strengthened in the inner man, so that we can share with someone else. And that may be sharing verbally. It may even just be sharing through our lives. And so God is the one who calls us. And, you know, this calling is very interesting because Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14 describes God's calling as a high calling. 1 Timothy 1.9 describes it as a holy calling. And Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 describes it as a heavenly calling. And so again, I'm just trying to emphasize the fact that this isn't a light thing. We have been called from above to represent the one we call Father. And he wants us to represent him well. So he expects us to walk worthy of this calling with a desire to please him and not ourselves. And so, you know, as we come to this transitional point in the book of Ephesians, from from doctrine to duty, from our position in Christ to our walk in Christ. You know, individually we have to ask ourselves these questions. Well, I hope we do anyway. You know, 
what adjustments do I need to make in my own personal life? You know, you are not the finished article. What adjustments do you need to make in your personal life so that you, so, so you can be in a place where, you know, I'm working on this being considered worthy of the calling for which I've been called for? What adjustments? Do you know, do you have, an, do you have anger issues? Are you selfish? Are you not loving and caring? You know, what, what things, you know, you know as an individual what you need to do to make these adjustments, these corrections. You know, last week I mentioned Kappa. Or Kappa. Remember Kappa? Kappa. So maybe do we have to remind ourselves of Kappa. K-U-P-P-A. Meaning, you know, our knowledge of Christ. Our understanding of Christ. Do we have to, you know, revisit our prayer life? And realize that, yes, I do actually have God's power in me. You know, do we have to revisit these things? It's a personal walk. And that's why the scripture says we must work it out with fear and trembling. Because it isn't, an, it isn't a joke. So, you know as an individual, and I know as, my, uh, as an individual, what I need to do in order to make these adjustments. So that, you know, I'm, I'm in line and I'm in tune with the Lord. Now, as we move on, and as hopefully you're meditating and thinking about applying particular principles in your life. The next two verse, verses actually gives us an indication as to how, you know, we can achieve these things. And the Apostle Paul, he sets this out in, in five steps. And a good sort of like five steps as foundational stones in a sense. And it has its reference back to what he prayed for in chapter 3 in verse 17, where it says, being rooted and grounded in love. That's where what he's going to go on to say has its root. So looking at the first step, if we are rooted and grounded in love, we wouldn't have a problem acting with all lowliness. which is another word for being humble and taking the low place. Humbleness. You know, it, again, it's a characteristic, it's a quality which, if you're humble, you're considered weak. Not according to the scriptures. If you're humble, it, it's, it's a demonstration of, of power. Of strength. And, you know, these things which, these five things which Paul's going to outline, you know, they are essential characteristics to maintain what he's going to go on to start talking about, which is unity. That's where he's going with his thoughts. Unity. Now, regarding the word lowly, or it may say 
humble in some of your translations. You know, it's interesting in studying this that the Greeks or the Romans didn't widely use this word at all. They didn't widely use the words lowliness or humbleness or because both the Greeks and, and the Romans felt that this just did not communicate anything they wanted to be associated with. Now I find that very, very interesting. As a culture, you wouldn't want to look at these words and consider them to be worthwhile. But praise the Lord that Jesus turns up in history and he sets the perfect example and lived in the reality of this characteristic. Christ was humble. In Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, Christ left glory to come down to the earth to become a man, to be abused by humanity, and to endure an excruciating death. And he didn't have to. If Christ didn't do it, he would still be God. But he humbled himself and became obedient. He sets the perfect example. And he sets the perfect example. And the book of James says, you know what? (laughs) If your master can do it, you can do it. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. So again, in The economy of the kingdom, if you want to go up, you have to go down. If you want to be great, you best become a servant. First Peter says, chapter 5, verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. What, 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 you want me to put on humility like a garment and just sort of like wear? Yes, exactly. That is the, the imagery which they're trying to communicate here. Be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. See, a lot of us are busy trying to exalt ourselves, big up ourselves. And again, in God's economy, it doesn't work. And that that portion goes on to say, casting all your care upon him for he actually does care for you. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 2. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger 
and not your own lips. And you know what? It's so tr- When you see someone and all they do is talk about themselves, it's just, it is off-putting, isn't it? You don't want to be rude to them or anything, but when they're like, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, and yeah, yeah, I've done this, and yeah, I'm doing that, and, and you're like, yeah, you can't even get a word in edgeways. They're so full of themselves. And God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to be humble. And you know what? It isn't the attitude of, I'm being humble because God's going to exalt me. It's like, if he chooses to. Because he may just want you to be humble and never exalt you, never lift you up. And if that is the case, it's all good. Because it should be, yes and amen, Father. So humility, I mean, so, so yeah, humility is an essential quality, an essential characteristic. The next thing mentioned is gentleness. Gentleness or meekness, which is the quality of moderation. It's strength and power under control. And under control being operative words here. And gentleness is not a synonym for weakness. Again, you meet someone who's gentle and you think, oh man. What a weak and timid individual. And it's not. It's a beautiful Christ-like quality to be gentle. And as we look at these two things, you know, lowliness and gentleness, you know, they, they in a sense form a natural couple. And it is beautifully displayed in the Lord when he said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And you know what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Why? For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And so we look at these things and we realize that we need to make room for gentleness, for lowliness within our lives. Characteristics which don't always come easy, but (laughs) the Christian life is not an easy life. The road is narrow. And then we look at the third and the fourth words, which also form a pair. The next one is with long-suffering. And I like the Greek word, macrothemia. Themia. That sounds really cool. Macrothemia which means long-tempered. It describes the attitude of being patient and never giving in to negative circumstances. You know, it's being long-suffering with people who you don't want to be long-suffering with. 
They, they perhaps annoy you. But you're Christian, so nobody annoys you, innit? What is it with this person? I don't like them. Yeah, be long-suffering. Love on them. But they just wind me up. Love on them. Be long-suffering. You see, these things are spiritual. Not spiritual in the... But this is where true spirituality comes into to life. When you can act in these characteristics and it goes against everything you really want to do. That in my world is spiritual. And you know what? We have difficulties with people who annoy us and we don't want to be long-suffering, but God the Father has demonstrated through time and history that he suffers long with us. Hmm. What if God the Father just one day says, done with suffering long, I'm calling time. I know it's written, but you know what? I'm God. I can change it if I want to. It's finished. I'm, I'm drawing up accounts now. What if he just did that? See, God doesn't have the same attitude as us. But he wants us to have the same attitude as him. God doesn't have that attitude, but one day he will settle accounts because the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't know if I stretched out that long there, but I'm going to do it again. He's long-suffering. Who needs some long-suffering in their world? Beloved, that's how we start walking in Christ. We start maturing in Christ. We start being more like Christ. You know, it isn't this, I'll lay hands on you and I'll say, Shandai Shandy, mine's a brandy. (laughs) Forgive me. This is where the reality, where the rubber hits the road. All right, let's move on then. We've done long suffering. Bearing with one another. It's kind of similar. Well, I've got to bear with that person. Yes. But they, again, they annoy me. Bear with them. We have to bear long. Suffer long. And, you know, it's in a sense that when... We bear with each other and it's like, even though, forgive me again, you might want to put your hand around someone's neck and throttle them. You just, you act in the opposite. The scripture says that, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. Not to say that anybody could be sinning against you, but it's like, you throw love on it. You know what, I've got a bit, but I'm going to love on you. So when we finish today and somebody just sort of like uncharacteristically is just showing you lots of love, 
Maybe they're, maybe they're trying to say something, but <laughs> no. They're outworking what the scripture says. Sorry for my humor. It's demonstrating this mutual tolerance towards one another. And you know, as I said, Paul is driving, you know, he's hit, he's hit the nail of, you know, middle walls of separation have come down. God has taken two and made them one. I'm going to start speaking about oneness. I'm going to start speaking about unity. How do we get all these things? Well, you have to start acting in all these ways because in the family of God, there's issues. That person doesn't like that person and that person doesn't like that person. And that person is not talking to that person. You know what? When those situations happen, stop thinking about yourself and put on gentleness. Put on lowliness. Be humble. You know, be forbearing. Be long-suffering with each other. Because that is how the world is going to, the world is going to look at the church and say, Rah, they, those guys love each other. They've got issues, but they just love on each other. That's what Jesus said. The world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Which means we have to work at this unity thing. This loving thing. You know, making allowances for, for, for that person's faults and failures. And, well, I just don't like their personality. You know, because they have different abilities or, or temperaments, we can't work with it. But we have to make allowances because, you know what, you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. So we make these allowances. Can I just share with you Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. It says, you have heard that it, it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Wow. Why? That you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, Jesus doesn't play. He's, he's asking us as believers to go that extra mile. And then after, once we've gone that extra mile, to go and some. And so... We have to bear with one another. And the last step is that we aim to do this in love. Because love always just encapsulates it all. Because if we love like Christ would have us love, then we, we will be lowly and humble as Christ is lowly and humble. We will be gentle just as Christ is gentle. We'll be, we will suffer long as Christ suffers long, he's long-suffering. 
We will forbear with one another as Christ forbears with us. And you know, we look at these, these five characteristics, and in so many ways, they're like five stones in your slingshot. You know, trying to give you the picture of, of David there. Picked up five smooth ones. And saw Goliath, you know, that giant over there, you know, abusing God's people. And he looks and he's like, I've got something for you, bruv. Five, and it's like, you may need to use one of these characteristics in your world today. Tomorrow at work. Tomorrow at college. You may, to, you may need to use it within your family. Bearing long. Long, being long-suffering, forgiving, covering with love. And as we use these things, we use them, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring basically means working at it, being diligent. Again, because, as I said, Paul is, is trying to get to this speaking about unity oneness is the goal so he pleads with these believers to maintain unity to keep it because unity is critical for the healthy growth of anybody if we don't have unity within south london then we're not going anywhere there's no point we go out on a friday night and try and evangelize the people what to bring them into madness it doesn't make any sense We need unity. And when Paul is referring to unity here, it's not like, yeah, well, you know what? We've got to do these programs because if we do these programs, we're going to create unity. And so we'll have a program for the youth and we'll have a program for the singles and we'll have the program for the older ones. And you get my point. And we have all these programs and it's going to create unity. And we share with other churches because it creates unity, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, it says keep the unity, which gives me the impression that unity is already there. We keep the unity. You know, God is already unified. The Godhead is unified. What they've established is already unified. You're not going to mash that up. Christ says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. It's unified. Now, we look back, we look through history, we even look today, we look at the church, we think, oh my goodness, what went wrong? And what basically has gone wrong over the ages is people have basically, and groups have basically been very, very selfish. They haven't tried to keep the unity of the faith. They rather say, well, you know what? I kind of like read that version and that text a bit differently to you. So, you know what? We better split because how can two walk unless they're agreed? But do we agree on the fundamentals? Yeah, we do. But the little gray areas, we don't agree on. So we better just. But do you agree on the fundamentals? So we can work together, yeah? But over the ages... People rather just go their separate ways. And so 
we have to keep, we have to maintain the unity which is already there. And how do we do that? Well, we do it because we all have a personal responsibility to keep the unity. And as we are keeping it individually, personally, I'm going to use the word somehow, God by his spirit, it, it works corporately. But when we have situations where we have factions over there and disagreements over there and we, 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 we get in our little huddles because, oh yeah, we believe in the same thing, innit? This unity, that is not what the scriptures is encouraging. And so we have to maintain or keep the unity in our personal life. And we have to have a walk that matches our position in Christ. And within that verse, it also says, you know, in the bond of peace. And, and the word bond is, is another word for belt. So again, you, you're kind of like getting this imagery of like, you have all these things and then like a belt, you're kind of like, like my trousers. I need to, I need the belt to kind of like tuck everything in. We belt it together in a bond of peace. So, you know, peace isn't just that, um, that word we're like, peace, my brother. Grace and peace. Shalom. It is all those words, but it's more than that. It's having that peace with one another. Living, with pe- living at peace with all men. Okay, I know we're taking us a, can you, another five, ten minutes. Amen. So, it's like a belt. And... Again, generally, people, believers, we're all the same. We want the benefits, the blessings, the rights and the privileges of being in God's family, but we don't always want to conform to the standards that God set out. So, as opposed to living in unity and acting with lowliness or humility, we operate and we live with pride as opposed to being in unity and living with gentleness or meekness, you know, we're harsh towards one another. Sometimes we're even brutal with each other. As opposed to being long-suffering with each other, we are intolerant. As opposed to being forbearing with one another in love, we just have these attitudes of being impatient. And as opposed to keeping unity we generally operate in disunity and disarray. And as I said, if we're not operating in unity and we're operating in disunity, that is what is going to be manifest corporately. Another portion, John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You know, Jesus paid the price so that we could be one. Just as he and the Father are one. And this is what he prayed in John 17. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, 
that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they, they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, Christ prays that, declaring that him and the Father in one, we're one in the Father, and as we demonstrate this oneness, it's going to be giving glory to the Father so that the world may know. See, the church has this, this bigger thing than what we, we actually think of. It's bigger. The church is declaring something to the universe. We have the physical church, but we have the invisible church as well, which is doing something in the spiritual realm. We don't get it. We don't quite understand it. We can't quite comprehend it, but it's going on, believe me. And as the church becomes unif- keep, keeps the unity, you know, it's declaring Christ, that the Father has sent Christ. It's powerful. And this oneness which Jesus prayed for in John 17, this is like what Paul, and this is what we're going to start closing with, this is what Paul picks up on here in this, in this next portion here. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Same language. Very, very similar language here. And so what, what Paul is driving at now is, is saying, instead, instead of highlighting and magnifying differences, we should focus on the things which actually hold us together. You know, and within this list of unity, you know, Paul now, you know, this unity which already exists, Paul now gives us seven references to oneness. And I don't know if any of you guys like numbers and their association within the scriptures, but seven is the number of completion. So, he says, we are one body, made up of all true believers throughout the generations, and this is not dependent on your race, on your culture, or your language. We are one body. The middle war separation, as I said before, has been torn down. We are one. God doesn't have multiple bodies. One body. And so from Pentecost to the rapture, the church is one. Made up of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, as it says in the book of Revelation. The body has one spirit. The same Holy Spirit who spiritually places us in the body at conversion and indwells every believer and forms the body of Christ. One spirit. We have one hope. Every believer is called to the same eternal hope. The same eternal destiny. There isn't one hope for me and another hope for you. It's all the same. 
We have one Lord. And when we go into um, this verse now, verse 5, the previous verse was speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's very, very clever here. Now he's speaking about the work of the Son. One Lord. You know, he's the one saver of us all. We don't have multiple Jesuses. One Jesus, one Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 8, it says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom all things, and through whom we live. So there's one Lord. We have one faith. This refers to the body of doctrine that we believe in. And as Jude says in Jude 3, he says, Beloved, while I was with you, very, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So, you know, again, when the guys go out on a Friday, you don't have a couple saying one version of the gospel and the other saying another version of the gospel. It's one gospel. It's one message. There's one faith, there's one Lord. The next thing is one baptism. Now, many have looked at this and, and said, well, maybe this is two-pronged because, you know, it's speaking of the baptism when the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body, but it's also speaking about water baptism. Now, looking at this, I kind of like feel like it's just speaking about water baptism because the first verses were speaking about the Holy Spirit, but then it says one Lord. And so we're looking at the ministry of the Lord now. Baptism, water baptism. And this is what we do as, you know, as we come into saving faith with the Lord and we confess Jesus as king and we're identified with him in death, burial, and resurrection. So there's one baptism. And then lastly, we have the seventh reference of oneness, which brings the completion in the Father. There is one God and Father of us all. Again, highlighting the oneness of all believers who have one Father. One Father to look to, one Father to worship, one Father to be obedient to, and one Father to be with for all eternity. And he is above all and he is sovereign because he resides over the whole universe. And he is able to act through all because God the Father can use everything and anything to accomplish his purpose. And then he closes and saying, and he is in you all. Because God dwells in all believers in every generation at the same time all over the world. It's just fantastic. God by his spirit is in here ministering to all of us in different ways. We're all different places within our Christian walk. And he's just the author and the finisher of everyone in this room. And it's heavy. And so within these verses, again, Paul just gives this picture of the triune God being one. And us 
He hopes, desiring to imitate their oneness by being unified and being one with each other. So, we have that task and that responsibility of maintaining the unity which already exists through our actions towards each other. And as we do that, you know, it will be just wonderful to see us working in all lowliness, being humble with each other, in all gentleness and being long-suffering, bearing with one another. And we do this all in love. Amen? Amen. So as the guys come up um, to lead us in a few more songs, let's pray.